Chapters 19 and 20 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzi. Chapter 19 Conflicting Evidence. By the time the public had been able to think over James Farbarn's evidence, a certain disquietude and unrest had begun to make itself felt, both in the bank itself and among those of our detective force who had charge of the case. The newspapers spoke of the matter with very obvious caution, and warned all their readers to await the further development of this sad case. While the manager of the English Provident Bank lay in such a precarious condition of health, it was impossible to arrive at any definite knowledge as to what the thief had actually made away with. The chief cashier, however, estimated the loss at about five thousand pounds in gold and notes of the bank money. That was, of course, on the assumption that Mr. Ireland had no private money or valuables of his own in the safe. Mind you, at this point public sympathy was much stirred in favour of the poor man who lay ill, perhaps dying, and yet whom, strangely enough, suspicion had already slightly touched with its poisoned wing. Suspicion is a strong word, perhaps, to use at this point in the story. No one suspected anybody at present. James Farbarn had told his story, and had vowed that some thief with false keys must have sneaked through the house into the inner office. Public excitement, you will remember, lost nothing by waiting. Hardly had we all had time to wonder over the night watchman's singular evidence, and pending further and fuller detail to check our growing sympathy for the man who was ill, than the sensational side of this mysterious case culminated in one extraordinary, absolutely unexpected fact. Mrs. Ireland, after a twenty-four hours' untiring watch beside her husband's sickbed, had at last been approached by the detective, and been asked to reply to a few simple questions, and thus helped to throw some light on the mystery which had caused Mr. Ireland's illness and her own consequent anxiety. She professed herself quite ready to reply to any questions put to her, and she literally astounded both inspector and detective when she firmly and emphatically declared that James Farborn must have been dreaming or asleep when he thought he saw her in the doorway at ten o'clock that night, and fancied he heard her voice. She may or may not have been down in the hall at that particular hour, for she usually ran down herself to see if the last post had brought any letters, but most certainly she had neither seen nor spoken to Mr. Ireland at that hour, for Mr. Ireland had gone out an hour before, she herself having seen him to the front door. Never for a moment did she swerve from this extraordinary statement. She spoke to James Fairburn in the presence of the detective, and told him he must absolutely have been mistaken, that she had not seen Mr. Ireland, and that she had not spoken to him. One other person was questioned by the police, and that was Mr. Robert Ireland, the manager's eldest son. It was presumed that he would know something of his father's affairs. The idea, having now taken firm hold of the detective's mind, that perhaps grave financial difficulties had tempted the unfortunate manager to appropriate some of the firm's money. Mr. Robert Ireland, however, could not say very much. His father did not confide in him to the extent of telling him all his private affairs, but money never seemed scarce at home, certainly, and Mr. Ireland had, to his son's knowledge, not a single extravagant habit. He himself had been dining out with a friend on that memorable evening, and had gone on with him to the Oxford Music Hall. He met his father on the doorstep of the bank at about 11.30 p.m., and they went in together. There certainly was nothing remarkable about Mr. Ireland then, his son averred. He appeared in no way excited, and bade his son good-night quite cheerfully. There was the extraordinary, the remarkable hitch, continued the man in the corner, waxing more and more excited every moment. The public, 
who is at times very dense, saw it clearly nevertheless. Of course, everyone at once jumped to the natural conclusion that Mrs. Ireland was telling a lie. A noble lie, a self-sacrificing lie, a lie endowed with all the virtues, if you like, but still a lie. She was trying to save her husband, and was going the wrong way to work. James Fairbairn, after all, could not have dreamt quite all that he declared he had seen and heard. No one suspected James Fairbairn. There was no occasion to do that. To begin with, he was a great heavy Scotchman, with obviously no powers of invention, such as Mrs. Ireland's strange assertion credited him with. Moreover, the theft of the banknotes could not have been of the slightest use to him. But remember, there was the hitch. Without it, the public mind would already have condemned the sick man upstairs, without hope of rehabilitation. This fact struck everyone. Granting that Mr. Ireland had gone into his office at ten minutes to ten o'clock at night, for the purpose of extracting five thousand pounds worth of notes and gold from the bank safe, whilst giving the theft the appearance of a night burglary, granting that he was disturbed in his nefarious project by his wife, who, failing to persuade him to make restitution, took his side boldly, and very clumsily attempted to rescue him out of his difficult position, why should he, at nine o'clock the following morning, fall in a dead faint and get cerebral congestion at sight of a defalcation he knew had occurred? One might simulate a fainting fit, but no one can assume a high temperature and a congestion, which the most ordinary practitioner, who happened to be called in, would soon see were non-existent. Mr. Ireland, according to James Fairbairn's evidence, must have gone out soon after the theft, come in again with his son an hour and a half later, talked to him, gone quietly to bed, and waited for nine hours before he fell ill at the sight of his own crime. It was not logical, you will admit. Unfortunately, the poor man himself was unable to give any explanation of the night's tragic adventures. He was still very weak, and though under strong suspicion, he was left, by the doctor's orders, in absolute ignorance of the heavy charges which were gradually accumulating against him. He had made many anxious inquiries from all who had access to his bedside as to the result of the investigation, and the probable speedy capture of the burglars, but every one had strict orders to inform him merely that the police so far had no clue of any kind. You will admit, as every one did, that there was something very pathetic about the unfortunate man's position, so helpless to defend himself, if defense there was, against so much overwhelming evidence. That is why I think public sympathy remained with him. Still, it was terrible to think of his wife, presumably knowing him to be guilty, and anxiously waiting whilst dreading the moment when, restored to health, he would have to face the doubts, the suspicions, probably the open accusations, which were fast rising up around him. CHAPTER Twenty, AN ALIBI It was close on six weeks before the doctor at last allowed his patient to attend to the grave business which had prostrated him for so long. In the meantime, among the many people who directly or indirectly were made to suffer in this mysterious affair, no one, I think, was more pitied and more genuinely sympathized with than Robert Ireland, the manager's eldest son. You remember that he had been clerk in the bank? Well, naturally, the moment suspicion began to fasten on his father, his position in the business became untenable. I think everyone was very kind to him. Mr. Sutherland French, who was made acting manager during Mr. Lewis Ireland's regrettable absence, did everything in his power to show his goodwill and sympathy to the young man. But I don't think that he or anyone else was much astonished when, after Mrs. Ireland's extraordinary attitude in the case had become public property, he quietly intimated to the acting manager that he had determined to sever his connection with the bank. The best of recommendations was, of course, placed at his disposal, 
and it was finally understood that, as soon as his father was completely restored to health, and would no longer require his presence in London, he would try to obtain employment somewhere abroad. He spoke of a new volunteer corps organized for military policing of the new colonies, and truth to tell, no one could blame him that he should wish to leave far behind him all London banking connections. The son's attitude certainly did not tend to ameliorate the father's position. It was pretty evident that his own family had ceased to hope in the poor manager's innocence. And yet he was absolutely innocent. You must remember how the fact was clearly demonstrated as soon as the poor man was able to say a word for himself, and he said it to some purpose, too. Mr. Ireland was, and is, very fond of music. On the evening in question, while sitting in his club, he saw in one of the daily papers the announcement of a peculiarly attractive program at the Queen's Hall concert. He was not dressed, but nevertheless felt an irresistible desire to hear one or two of these attractive musical items, and he strolled down to the hall. Now this sort of alibi is usually very difficult to prove, but Dame Fortune, oddly enough, favoured Mr. Ireland on this occasion, probably to compensate him for the hard knocks she had been dealing with him pretty freely of late. It appears that there was some difficulty about his seat, which was sold to him at the box-office, and which he, nevertheless, found wrongfully occupied by a determined lady who refused to move. The management had to be appealed to. The attendants also remembered not only the incident, but also the face and appearance of the gentleman who was the innocent cause of the altercation. As soon as Mr. Ireland could speak for himself, he mentioned the incident and the persons who had been witness to it. He was identified by them, to the amazement, it must be confessed, of police and public alike, who had comfortably decided that no one could be guilty except the manager of the Provident Bank himself. Moreover, Mr. Ireland was a fairly wealthy man, with a good balance at the Union Bank, and plenty of private means, the result of years of provident living. He had but to prove that if he really had been in need of an immediate five thousand pounds, which was all the amount extracted from the bank safe that night, he had plenty of securities on which he could, at an hour's notice, have raised twice that sum. His life insurances had been fully paid up. He had not a debt which a five-pound note could not easily have covered. On the fatal night he certainly did remember asking the watchman not to bolt the door to his office, as he thought he might have one or two letters to write when he came home, but later on he had forgotten all about this. After the concert he met his son in Oxford Street, just outside the house, and thought no more about the office, the door of which was shut, and presented no unusual appearance. Mr. Ireland absolutely denied having been in his office at the hour when James Fairbairn positively asserted he heard Mrs. Ireland say in an astonished tone of voice, "'Why, Lewis, what in the world are you doing here?' It became pretty clear, therefore, that James Fairbairn's view of the manager's wife had been a mere vision. Mr. Ireland gave up his position as manager of the English Provident. Both he and his wife felt no doubt that on the whole, perhaps, there had been too much talk, too much scandal connected with their name, to be altogether advantageous to the bank. Moreover, Mr. Ireland's health was not so good as it had been. He has a pretty house now at Sittingbourne, and amuses himself during his leisure hours with amateur horticulture, and I, who alone in London besides the persons directly connected with this mysterious affair, know the true solution of the enigma, often wonder how much of it is known to the ex-manager of the English Provident Bank. The man in the corner had been silent for some time. Miss Polly Burton, in her presumption, had made up her mind, at the commencement of his tale, to listen attentively to every point of the evidence in connection with the case which he recapitulated before her, and to follow the point, in order to try and arrive at a conclusion of her own, and overwhelm the antediluvian scarecrow with her sagacity. 
She said nothing, for she had arrived at no conclusion. The case puzzled everyone, and had amazed the public in its various stages, from the moment when opinion began to cast doubt on Mr. Ireland's honesty, to that when his integrity was proved beyond a doubt. One or two people had suspected Mrs. Ireland to have been the actual thief, but that idea had soon to be abandoned. Mrs. Ireland had all the money she wanted. The theft occurred six months ago, and not a single banknote was ever traced to her pocket. Moreover, she must have had an accomplice, since someone else was in the manager's room that night, and if that someone else was her accomplice, why did she risk betraying him by speaking loudly in the presence of James Fairbairn, when it would have been so much simpler to turn out the light and plunge the hall into darkness? "'You are altogether on the wrong track,' sounded a sharp voice, in direct answer to Polly's thoughts. "'Altogether wrong. If you want to acquire my method of induction and improve your reasoning power, you must follow my system.' First think of the one absolutely undisputed positive fact. You must have a starting point, and not go wandering about in the realms of suppositions. But there are no positive facts, she said irritably. You don't say so, he said quietly. Do you not call it a positive fact that the bank safe was robbed of five thousand pounds on the evening of March 25th before 11.30 p.m.? Yes, that is all which is positive, and— Do you not call it a positive fact, he interrupted quietly, that the lock of the safe not being picked, it must have been opened by its own key? I know that, she rejoined crossly, and that is why everyone agreed that James Fairbairn could not possibly— And do you not call it a positive fact, then, that James Fairbairn could not possibly, etc., etc., seeing that the glass partition door was locked from the inside? Mrs. Ireland herself let James Fairbairn into her husband's office when she saw him lying fainting before the open safe. Of course that was a positive fact, and so was the one that proved to any thinking mind that if the safe was opened with a key, it could only have been done by a person having access to that key. But the man in the private office! Exactly! The man in the private office! Enumerate his points, if you please, said the funny creature, marking each point with one of his favorite knots. He was a man who might that night have had access to the key of the safe, unsuspected by the manager or even his wife, and a man for whom Mrs. Ireland was willing to tell a downright lie. Are there many men for whom a woman of the better middle class and an Englishwoman would be ready to perjure herself? Surely not. She might do it for her husband. The public thought she had. It never struck them that she might have done it for her son. Her son! exclaimed Polly. Ah, she was a clever woman, he ejaculated enthusiastically, one with courage and presence of mind, which I don't think I have ever seen equaled. She runs downstairs before going to bed in order to see whether the last post has brought any letters. She sees the door of her husband's office ajar. She pushes it open, and there, by the sudden flash of a hastily struck match, she realizes in a moment that a thief stands before the open safe, and in that thief she has already recognized her son. At that very moment she hears the watchman's step approaching the partition. There is no time to warn her son. She does not know the glass door is locked. James Fairbairn may switch on the electric light, and see the young man in the very act of robbing his employer's safe. One thing alone can reassure the watchman— one person alone had the right to be there at that hour of the night, and without hesitation she pronounces her husband's name. Mind you, I firmly believe that at the time the poor woman only wished to gain time, that she had every hope that her son had not yet had the opportunity to lay so heavy a guilt upon his conscience. What passed between mother and son we shall never know, but this much we do know, that the young villain made off with his booty and trusted that his mother would never betray him. Poor woman! What a night of it she must have spent! but she was clever and far-seeing. 
She knew that her husband's character could not suffer through her action. Accordingly, she took the only course open to her to save her son even from his father's wrath, and boldly denied James Farbarn's statement. Of course, she was fully aware that her husband could easily clear himself, and the worst that could be said of her was that she had thought him guilty and had tried to save him. She trusted to the future to clear her of any charge of complicity in the theft. By now, everyone has forgotten most of the circumstances. The police are still watching the career of James Fairbarn and Mrs. Ireland's expenditure. As you know, not a single note so far has been traced to her. Against that, one or two of the notes have found their way back to England. No one realizes how easy it is to cash English banknotes at the smaller agents de change abroad. The changeurs are only too glad to get them. What do they care where they came from as long as they are genuine? And a week or two later, Monsieur Le Changeur could not swear who tendered him any one particular note. You see, young Robert Ireland went abroad. He will come back some day, having made a fortune. There's his photo. And this is his mother. A clever woman, wasn't she? And before Polly had time to reply, he was gone. She really had never seen any one move across a room so quickly. But he always left an interesting trail behind, a piece of string knotted from end to end, and a few photos. End of chapters 19 and 20